want to take you back to 2013, the day I quit my job without notice. I was a social worker in the foster care system. Part of my job was to remove kids from their homes because of abuse or neglect. And I worked with a lot of kids who were never going back to their parents. Every day I witnessed trauma and that took a toll on me. There wasn't any time or space to process it, but I just kept going and going, no matter how much it churned my stomach and for years I suffered with insomnia. After six and a half years of it, I was tapped out. I dreaded going to work and I called out of work on a monthly basis. I was at least an hour late every day and I found ways to leave early. Even when I was physically there, sometimes I felt totally disconnected. Mentally and emotionally, I was gone. But then I made a mistake that I knew I couldn't come back from on a personal, moral level. It was a late September day and I just couldn't get myself out of bed. I didn't go to work. I didn't even call in sick. I simply just didn't show. But that day, one of my kids on my caseload needed to be hospitalized. This unfortunately was a regular occurrence for him. So everyone was looking for me because I was technically his legal guardian and I had to sign documents allowing him to be hospitalized. By the time I finally responded to my team, one of my coworkers had already stepped in. I felt incredibly guilty, and I knew it was time for me to leave. I knew if I continued to work there, the families and the children that counted on me would eventually pay for how numb and burnt out I'd become. So the very next day, I wrote my resignation letter. I remember the feeling of sadness, guilt, anxiety, and relief. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I was burnt out. I let my social work license lapse, which meant I couldn't practice as a social worker or therapist. I closed the door on the mental health system for good. Or so I thought. Quitting that job was a first step towards taking responsibility and ownership of my mental health. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was the first turning point in a healing journey that would take several years. I'm Frances Lees, and this is Turning Points, a show about navigating mental health, sponsored by Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan. I'm a licensed clinical social worker again, and through the next four episodes, we'll be hearing about those turning point moments, the event or conversation or moment that inspired someone to make a real commitment to their mental health. These aren't necessarily stories of hitting rock bottom, though of course some of us do. More often, they're small moments that build up into a realization that we need a change. I contacted the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Massachusetts, which provides support for people with mental health conditions. I asked their members to leave me voicemails describing their own turning points. When did they know it was time to take ownership of their mental health? And what specific actions actually helped them? Here's some of what they had to say. I would always say, well, once I move, once my workload lightens, once I'm done with school, etc., I will prioritize self-care and my mental health. My art teacher could see how much I was struggling and how burnt out I was. 
She shared with me how meditation and mindfulness had helped her. I set boundaries for myself when it came to work and commitments, and I made time to incorporate meditation, breathwork, and a mindfulness practice, which I use in conjunction with journaling, into my life. All of these things really improved my mental health. The turning point for me was, you know, that aha moment is when I heard this girl sharing her testimony. And she talked about everything that she has gone through and how she was able to overcome. And I couldn't believe it. See, I thought I was the only one going through the mess that I was going through. But here she was, smiling and bubbly and being sociable. And that pretty much started my journey. And I used different tools to do that, such as changing my mindset. See, one of the things that I did was, since I always called myself a loser all the time, was I put a piece of paper that said, I am a winner, and I taped it to the hallway of my house. So every time I'd walk down that hallway, I'd see that. Even though I didn't believe it, I was retraining my thoughts. And eventually I started thinking it, I started saying it, and then I believed it. I sought out therapy for my issues around eating and really sadness and despair. I was in a coffee shop after I had been in treatment for some time that I looked around and I saw this woman who was at ease with her environment. She was interacting with others. She was laughing. And I got the message that maybe I could have that too. And so at that point, I started to engage in my treatment. And I have to be mindful and take note of when I'm moving to a darker place and take action and correct it. Despite my mental illness, I am able to live with it. I work full time. I have a beautiful family. And when the sun shines, I do feel like it shines for me. A lot of people who left us voice notes mentioned therapy, but that definitely wasn't the only thing they mentioned. As you just heard, mindfulness, journaling, changing your mindset, all of these things helped them. I found a way to return to the mental health field that recognizes that there are many different ways to approach mental health. I call myself a TheraCoach, which means I bridge the two worlds between therapy and life coaching. And that allows me to bring in some of the missing pieces that therapists usually don't address, like spirituality, plant medicines, and all kinds of alternative methods to healing. We'll explore several different paths to better mental health through this series. We'll hear personal stories from people who can attest to the powerful benefits of exercise and community. We're going to talk about how digital lives affect our mental health. We're going to talk about meditation, yoga, and nature. And along the way, we'll hear from experts who can help us understand just how all of these things fit into the picture of overall mental health. But first, we're going to hear from someone who knows you just can't decide to have good mental health and expect things to change in an instant. It takes work. And there's a lot of things that we just don't have much control over. Big things, systemic things. In my case, part of my burnout and depression was anger at the foster care system. It's full of antiquated processes that often re-traumatize families. And there's little support for the people who work inside the system. Of course, there are people working to improve the system. But when it comes to your personal mental health, we have to focus on what we do have some control over, 
which is what we do with ourselves, how we manage the day-to-day stuff, and how to respond to it. And that idea of focusing on what you can change, even when you're in a system that can harm you, that is something my first guest understands. She's a lawyer-turned-life coach named Kara Lowenthal. She has a popular podcast you might have heard of called Unfuck Your Brain. Her whole mission is to help women find a way to buck the sexist social conditioning and thought processes that we're brought up with. Kara is redefining the mental health space by using techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy to address internalized oppression. I'll let her explain. Kara, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a little bit about who you are, your coaching business, and The Clutch. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Kara Lowenthal. I am a feminist confidence coach. I teach women how to identify the ways in which socialization has impacted their thought processes. And I focus a lot on gender-based socialization, but of course, this applies to any other kind of system of power or oppression in our society. So the ways our brains are impacted by white supremacy, by ableism, by fat phobia, by ageism, by sort of all the different messages we get from society about who's valuable, who matters, how people are to be treated, what is worthwhile about people. And I teach women how to change those thought patterns using cognitive strategies that actually rewire the way you think. And The Clutch is my feminist coaching membership. It's sort of like you go to the gym to work out your body, come to The Clutch to work on your mind. I love how you incorporate the internalized oppression because often we don't realize how much that seeps into our subconscious. So love that. Yeah, 100%, because it often sounds like our own voice, right? I always say, like, if it sounded like a flummy accent from a white man on the TV in the 1950s or something, we would recognize that wasn't ours. It sounded like Cary Grant or something, but it doesn't. It just comes out in our own voice that's like, you really, you know, you're not good enough for that, or you didn't deserve that, or you need to lose weight, or, you know, there must be something wrong with you if you're not married yet. It just sounds like our voice. So it is so, so sneaky. So sneaky. So this episode is all about the power of the turning point moment, the seismic shift that occurs when someone truly commits to their mental health. And I know that you underwent a big transformation in the way that you felt about yourself and kind of like how you showed up in the world. Can you tell me the story of when, why, and how that happened? Yeah, I always say I've been a professional feminist my whole life one way or the other. So I worked in the reproductive rights movement and on reproductive justice issues, but more in a kind of mainstream legal framework. And so I was a lawyer, I was litigating, but I just always felt like somebody around here has got to know a way to be human that is like a little less chaotic and like horrible, you know, just like I I just sort of always like somebody must know how to do this better. Like my brain feels crazy. You know, like I'm constantly stressing myself out. I have all the self-loathing. So many amazing women I do. Like somebody's got to know how to be a human and better. So I tried like, you know, I went to therapy and I got into meditation and yoga, like all the things you kind of try. And then I found there's sort of two different points I could place the turning point on. One would be when I found my teacher's work, whose name is Brooke Castillo of the Life Coach School. That's her school. 
I'm sure that somebody had mentioned to me before that, that your thoughts cause your feelings. But I just like, you know, there's a yoga saying that's like, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, you know, kind of like I just, for whatever reason, the way that she delivered it, the way she explained it, the way she built on other people's teaching and added her own unique perspective just really resonated with me. And that was, I was kind of like, that, that was a record scratch moment where I was like, I'm sorry, excuse me, what? <laughs> like, what are you saying that like my feelings are caused by the way I'm thinking and not by like everything around me in the world? That was major news to me. So I think you could see that as the turning point because that's really the point from which everything else started to change. And I started to see like, this is so weird. I'm surrounded by these high accomplished, achieving feminist women. We have all these beliefs about like women's equality and their value and all this stuff. And then like all, but also we are like people pleasing all over the place and like caring more what some dude you met on Tinder two weeks ago thinks about your body than you do. You know, there was this mismatch. And I was like, it's not just me, actually. I see now this is like, this is happening for everyone. And I woke up one morning and it did sort of feel like this revelation had arrived. <laughs> like I woke up and <laughs> like you just arrived. You're like, whoa. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm going to quit my job. I was running a think tank, but I was supposed to go on the market to what they call the market, the academic market to become a law professor. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to become a life coach. I'm going to coach lawyers. So I think depending on how you define it, like those were the two, you know, the moment that I like actually was able to hear that I had more control over my experience than I thought I did and was able to actually internalize that is what really changed everything. And then the moment of like professional pivot was deciding to leave this career that I had invested like hundreds of thousands of dollars and time and intellectual prestige. You know, I come from like a New York Jewish family where everybody has a graduate degree pretty much. Like this is not a family where people are like, be whatever you want, including a life coach. I mean, they've come around now and I think my parents are both very proud of me, but they were understandably perturbed by the idea in the beginning. So that was like a big, that took a lot of discovering thoughts cause feelings just felt like freedom. Deciding to abandon this like career that I had invested so much time and energy and effort in to do this, what sounded like this completely bananas thing, that was a lot harder. Yeah, so you had to undergo your own social conditioning as yeah. well, right? All these labels, totally. all these identities. And then find the courage within yourself to say, I'm going to pursue this. And, and it may not make sense to everyone else, but it feels good in my soul. And that's not easy for folks. And, and I want to highlight how you said, wait a minute, my thoughts, there's this whole connection. And, you know, when we're ready to hear it, that's when all those shifts happen. Right. And yeah. And I think also if I was like, what's the one biggest thing that keeps people from going after those big goals or making that change? I think it's the expectation that they should feel ready to do it or it should not feel terrifying. I had done enough coaching and thought work by then to be like, oh, okay, this is supposed to feel like I'm dying. This is supposed to feel terrible. I am like supposed to feel like I literally want to throw up. Like I am supposed to feel physically nauseous about doing this. I am supposed to be scared. I am supposed to have a lot of drama about what other people think. I was like, able to be all in for that. And I think so many people who have those kinds of dreams, there's the part of you you have to resolve that tells you you can't do it. But then there's also the part of you like it's so easy to be like, well, I just don't feel sure yet. So I'm going to like wait until I feel sure or like I don't feel confident yet. So that must mean I'm not ready yet. So I'll just wait until I feel confident. And like that, that ship ain't coming. That day ain't coming. You got to go into it being like, this is going to feel horrible. But it's actually a relief when you take away the idea that it will ever 
feel good if you wait long enough, then you can just decide, do I want this? Like, I'm going to feel bad either way. Do I want to do what I want to do feeling this way? Or do I want to stagnate, right? It's a much better choice to make. Yeah, I don't know if any turning point you walk in saying, hey, this feels great and I'm going to go ahead. (laughs) In your coaching business, you talk about a lot how like how the social conditioning is bad for women's mental and emotional health. And that's a lot of the things that keeps them from moving forward. What specific social conditioning do you think most women need to unlearn? Yeah, the messaging even just around what we expect of women is going to vary, right, based on are you a woman of color? Are you a poor woman? Are you a disabled woman? Like everybody's going to have their own version of it. But I think for women on some level, what it boils down to is everybody else's opinion of you matters more than your opinion of you. It matters more if other people are happy than if you're happy. And so I think so much of the work I do really comes down to helping women establish their relationship with themselves as the most important relationship in their lives. Like that is our longest relationship with our body, with our own mind. Like that is the relationship you have from birth to death, whenever that is. And when that relationship is strong, you're so grounded for whatever you're going to do. That doesn't mean life is always easy. So this is going to be like, you know, coach to coach conversation here. I'm a TheraCoach, which basically means I'm a therapist that operates now as a coach. And you're a master certified coach. And so we're both in the business of helping people create lifelong changes that actual stick, right? So why do people come to see you? What are they typically struggling with? So I have a podcast called Unfuck Your Brain. And so at this point, a lot of people have heard the podcast before they come to me. So they're a little more kind of on board with the idea that their thoughts, they've learned to think this way, they can learn to think another way. But I think all of it relates back to that just sort of like constantly feeling anxious, feeling guilty, feeling ashamed, although a lot of people don't know that shame is what they're feeling when they start. I originally started out just coaching lawyers, uh, women lawyers. And what I realized was that I was really coaching women with high anxiety and high self-criticism and perfectionistic thinking in different areas of their lives. The through thread is like anxiety, guilt, worry, often around other people's perceptions or like inadequacy. So how much in relation is coaching to mental health for those who aren't too familiar with coaching? Honestly, what I think is humans have always had trouble with being a human. It's very confusing. People have always needed help. And in the past, that's been like teachers or philosophers or the village elders or the local priest or the whatever, right? And so I honestly think that's what, to me, like, therapy and coaching are also about. I think that there's like no human who doesn't need thought work. And then some people need additional strategies also. So can you define for those who may not be familiar, what is thought work? And then how do you kind of coach your clients through that? When I say thought work, I really just mean the practice of becoming aware of our thinking and then changing our thinking on purpose, choosing what you want to think and believe, just like you choose what kind of food to eat or what fuel you put in your car or whatever else, like what's going to run this thing. And so that really leads to changing behavior. So in a model that I teach, which the core of which is really from cognitive behavioral psychology, right, which is they call it a thought emotion behavior. I call it a thought feeling action. Someone cuts you off in traffic and you feel angry and then you honk on the horn, (laughs) right? It's thought feeling action. So 
when we try to change our actions without changing our thoughts, sometimes we can kind of what I call white knuckle it, which is like just force ourselves through sheer willpower to act a different way for a short period of time. But it's not sustainable, right? It always backfires. But even during the time you're able to change it that way, you don't actually feel any better because you haven't changed your thoughts and feelings, right? So if you really want to change a behavior, you have to back up, stop focusing on the behavior, and look at what thoughts and feelings are driving it, and then how are you going to shift those? And that involves becoming aware of what you're thinking that's driving the behavior, because most people don't know, right? We'll just say, like, well, when I'm really stressed, then I drink three bottles of wine. We got to figure out what are you actually thinking? What's the feeling you're trying to get away from? And then you have to reverse engineer it and figure out what you're going to practice thinking instead and bit by bit change the way you're thinking. When your thought and your feeling have shifted, the action takes care of itself naturally. Yeah. And for those of us who want to think our way through things, that's not always helpful. So, for example, I'm, I don't feel like I'm good enough. Something happens. And then I have the feeling where I feel like crap. And then afterwards, I might eat. I'm an emotional eater, so uh, I had to really train myself. So you need to be able to have like this space. Okay, I have this thought. Where is it coming from? I have this feeling. I'm going to sit with this feeling and not try to cover it up with emotional eating or whatever it is. Now I have to be mindful to not only change a thought, sit with the feeling, be okay with the feeling, and then choose a different action. I love what you just said about um, you like to think your way through things. It's such an important distinction. The difference between I pay attention to my thoughts so I can decide if I want to keep thinking them or I can brainstorm something new and practice that is so different from I'm just going to keep thinking the same thoughts over and over again and hoping that they somehow cohere into a decision or action or some resolution. Right. We just like drive ourselves. Just yeah. We're just like on a <laughs> merry-go-round going around and around. We're like, man, I just can't wait till this merry-go-round turns into a straight line. Like, that's never going to happen. you got to get off the merry-go-round on purpose and go where you're trying to go. Of course, we all know mental health is not a one-and-done thing. You don't just arrive and you're like, aha, I'm good, and that's it, right? <laughs> the heavens open <laughs> right? And peace forever descends. So what are some things you do regularly to make sure you're feeling balanced, not letting the insecurities or self-doubt creep in? I don't really try to be balanced. I try to be resilient. My goal for myself, for my students, for like all marginalized people everywhere is more true resilience. What we call resilience is often people suffering and white duckling through difficulty and oppression. And that's not what I mean. I don't mean resilience as I just manage to keep going because that's what I have to do to survive. I mean resilience as I develop the emotional and mental coping tools and skills to be able to confront reality that isn't the way that I want it to be or where the world isn't the world I want it to be and to believe in my own capacity to grow and achieve and help change it. That's what resilience is to me. So to me, it's not like, how do I stay on an even keel? It's how do I have my own back when I'm down? <laughs> how do I enjoy the ride when I'm up, right? Like my swings up and down are much less after thought work. Like I used to be extremely emotionally fragile in the sense of like I could be sent into a tailspin by anything and that it would be days or weeks before I emerged. And when I received external validation, I was like high as a kite for 20 minutes and then crashed. Like I used to be like that. So on some level, it is like the waves are much smaller. But part of it has also just been accepting that like this is being a human, at least in my case, 
there's still waves. There's energy waves. There's emotional waves. Just understanding that suffering is resistance to what is, right? Our suffering comes from our resistance. And that's also complicated in this perspective I teach it because that doesn't mean we should be like, well, genocide exists. I guess no biggie. I'm just not going to be concerned. Like, I'm Jewish. I don't believe that. Holocaust was a big deal. Like, but it means releasing the emotional resistance, which is like our sort of constantly thinking that things should be different and we shouldn't be having the experience we're having. When we release that, we actually free up so much energy to actually go out and change the world if that's what we want to do. So my best tip is like, I constantly am saying to myself like, okay, why are we suffering? Every single effing time without fail when I am suffering, it is because I believe whatever's happening should be different. So that is a question that I, that's like a touchstone I come back to all the time. Like, am I resisting reality if I just accepted that what's, and acceptance doesn't mean condone, it doesn't mean validate, it doesn't mean never try to change. It just means like, this is reality. Whatever's happening is happening. So me believing it should be different is not producing anything. So is there anything else that you want to say to listeners who are looking for their own turning points? When you believe that things can't change, that you can't have what you want, that society won't let you, that the world is against you, that you aren't good enough, like all of that shit is the oppressor's voice. That is not you. To me, that is like the internalized oppression speaking. Do some of us have more challenges than others? Like a hundred percent, right? I live in a fat body. Do I think dating in New York City as a fat woman is the same as dating in New York City as a size two woman? No, I do not. But if I believe because I'm fat, I can't find love, right? Because I'm fat, I can't have that. Because I'm fat, I can't have good sex or a partner that respects me or any of those things. Whose work am I doing? That's not my work. That's not me. That's not the reality I want to live in, right? That is me holding myself back because of what I have been taught. I am doing the fat phobic society's work for it, right? So whatever identity you're living in, like when we believe the things we're taught about what's possible for us, we are doing the oppressor's work for them. And that's not your job. They can do that themselves. <laughs> your job is to believe in the possibility to fight for that person you want to become, right? And just be willing to be wrong about what's possible for you. Well, that's a mic drop. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kara. I really enjoyed this episode and I enjoyed talking to you. I hope that my story and Kara's story both show it is possible to truly change. It's not easy, but it's possible. For most of us, lasting change takes sustained effort over time. Quitting my job back in 2013, that was just the beginning. See, even after I quit my job, which I thought would solve everything, I still experienced bouts of depression and even panic attacks. But once I started on a path to improve my mental health, I decided to keep going. Over the next several years, I slowly but surely took steps to climb out of that depression and anxiety. I saw a therapist. I worked on my own spiritual connections. I traveled and started meditating and found guidance from various shamans and healers. That was my journey to today. 
It certainly hasn't been easy, but I'm no longer depressed or anxious. My life moves forward in ways that I feel good about. And for the first time ever, I'm genuinely enjoying life. To hear Kara's podcast or learn more about her online feminist coaching community, go to unfuckyourbrain.com. Visit globe.com forward slash turning points, one word, for more information on mental health care and resources. And to hear more turning point stories, join us next time. We'll hear from a Bostonite who says running every week with a group of fellow Black men has helped his mental health. And we'll talk to a sports psychologist about the mental benefits of exercise, as well as the dangers of perfectionism for athletes. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Maria Luisa Tucker, Brian Rivers, Matt Sav, Eric Zeller, and Rachel King. And special thanks to Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan and the Studio B team at Boston Globe Media. Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan are committed to guiding and supporting members on their behavioral health journeys, connecting them to the service, tools, and support they need.